warm welcome back, listeners. Pleasure to have you with us. This is Science Changing Life, and I'm your host, Drew Duglin. Today, we play with nature's building blocks as I'm joined by chemist Ryan Shenvey, whose lab investigates traditional remedies from the four corners of the world with the hopes of reconstructing them in the lab to develop interesting molecules for learning, memory, and mental health. First, though, let's join Ryan as he considers what it does or doesn't mean to be a scientist and how he first approached the field of chemistry. You were probably familiar with this big push for representation in movies and in many different fields, and I think that's also true in science, and I think that's really important, not just for uh, representation of other people who will like you in that field or on the screen, but also for what you could say self-representation. It's like when I was growing up, I didn't have much of an opinion about myself, I guess, one way or the other, but I definitely didn't think of myself as a, as a scientist or having a sort of a scientific streak. But you can think of yourself as an artist and you can still be great in science. You can think of yourself as a theater geek or a band nerd or a jock and you can still be great in science. And I don't think you have to think of yourself as a scientist to be great in science. You just be yourself and do the best you can. So I, I just think that sometimes um, when you hear about people's childhoods, other people think, oh, I have to be like that if I want to be good in science. And, you know, I think what inhibits people therefore from going into science is the idea that they don't feel like they belong. I think it's true of a lot of different fields. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that applies to lots of things. I think we often sort of have our identity built on one thing and want to exclude it from other things. So how did you, once you did kind of get into science, what was it about chemistry? that sort of made things tick for you? I mean, the funny thing is that I, I've sort of learned chemistry more from like a top-down approach as opposed to a bottom-up. So what I mean is that I really never cared for general chemistry that I had in high school or even early in college, which is nothing to say, you know, no, nothing against my teachers. It's just I didn't enjoy it. I felt it was very dry. And it wasn't actually until I took my second semester of organic chemistry that it really clicked. At the time, I was also taking a course in discrete math and the logic of proofs. And there was something about that way of thinking combined with the visual framework for understanding chemistry that I found really appealing. It kind of drew me into this problem-solving process of synthetic chemistry, uh, synthetic organic chemistry in particular, where we're, we're putting molecules together and developing the logic to do that. And now as I've become... Uh, and I've been in the field for a long time, and I've appreciated the importance of all of the concepts in general chemistry. I've now had to sort of learn backwards from being a professor of chemistry to learn all the basics the other way around, the top down, I guess you could say. So you mentioned just then sort of organic chemistry, and there's so many different types of chemistry. So what is the difference there between organic and inorganic chemistry? Because I feel like those are two major branches right there. I guess to put it simply, organic chemistry mainly involves the chemistry of carbon. Now, it's not exclusively carbon. Most organic molecules contain carbon and hydrogen, and in addition, oxygen and nitrogen. Hmm. And many of the molecules in biochemistry then additionally contain phosphorus and to some extent sulfur, there's sulfation can occur. But for the most part, it's just a handful of little elements, whereas in inorganic chemistry, you really broaden out to the rest of the periodic table. 
Got it. So that's where sort of metals come in and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And that can be anywhere from alkali metals. So those things like table salt, sodium chloride, or sodium iodide, or magnesium salt or calcium, all the way to the precious metals like gold or platinum or palladium. Got it. So within the type of chemistry that you do in your lab, what is sort of a broad overview of what you folks study and what the the aims and, and the goals are of the lab? Uh, yeah, so our research group is focused on chemical synthesis and put simply that's building molecules and in particular building organic molecules. And synthesis in many ways sounds a lot like construction work, which kind of gets a low value in our society, maybe unfairly. But, you know, if you think about it, about 100 years ago, there were no skyscrapers. So it's not as though construction work is not without value. Or if you think about it um, more in technological terms, fabricating a microprocessor is incredibly important. And that is a construction process. So what we do is we construct small, mainly carbon-containing molecules. And the cool thing about that is it's not following a set of instructions. It's not like assembling furniture from Ikea where the plan is laid out for you. Instead, it's a lot more like a game of chess where every atom you can think of as a chess piece and then every chemical reaction is a move you make or a move by your opponent. And in this case, physics is in many ways your enemy and it sort of a threat threatens to obliterate the pieces you've set up. So it takes really a lot of careful experimentation and analysis to figure out how you assemble all of your pieces, your atoms in the right positions. But then when you do, you know, you have a chance to explore the function of that small organic molecule. How does that particular constellation of atoms interact with a protein or a cell or a tissue or an organism? Got it. I think, I think that's, that's both very challenging, but an awful lot of fun and potentially very important. It is, but it's always so difficult for me to wrap my head around like this idea of inventing chemistry, like making new molecules. Like I, I never know what's that starting point. Like how do you how do you construct this idea of what it what it will be like or if this will be useful in some way? That's a great question. So so there are there are a couple parts to that question. On the one hand, there are plenty of chemical reactions that are already known. Right? So you take vinegar, you take baking soda, you mix them together in a poorly constructed clay volcano, and you get bubbling occurring. And that is a known chemical reaction of evolution of carbon dioxide. If you take, let's say, mineral acid that you can buy at like a hardware store, and you take zinc metal of like pennies, and you mix them together, you see hydrogen evolving from that metal. All sorts of reactions that are that are known. And it turns out that many of these reactions are very selective. So if you take zinc metal and some mineral acid and you put next to it your wedding ring, which by the way, you probably shouldn't do. I mean, I'm really putting my money where my mouth is here, but, uh, and you, and you mix, you know, pour the mineral acid, it'll react with the zinc metal. It won't react with your gold wedding ring as long as it's, you know, high carat gold. So the same is true of these small organic molecules. A lot of chemical reactions that can occur are actually quite selective for particular groupings of atoms. And so if you plan them correctly, mm. you can sequence this uh, these order of reactions so that you make exactly what you want each time. 
it doesn't always work that way. And a lot of times because these molecules are essentially forced together in a way that they've otherwise never encountered each other before, because the atoms are uh, held in a different position, different proximity, different constellation. Sometimes the reactions you plan don't work out the way you expect. Right. Okay. So there's that side of it. And you have to then analyze what has happened and work around the problems to come up with a solution. Many times, the best solution you can think of doesn't correspond to a chemical reaction that's known. And so then you have to invent a new chemical reaction. A lot of it happens by way of analogy. You say, okay, this chemical reaction is known. It looks a lot like this chemical reaction. Maybe we can mix and match the components and they'll react in a new kind of way. Oh, that's interesting. So it's kind of be like, you know, okay, here you have a Model T Ford. That sure looks like a Model T Tesla. Maybe actually, there is no Model T. Model S, let's say, okay. So maybe we can take the guts of the Tesla and just put it into a Model T. And now we have an electric Ford. Well, I don't want this podcast breaking up people's marriages with that wedding ring experiment. So <laughs> don't try that at home. Yeah. It's funny you said, um, you know, nature's construction workers, because I think I've described you guys as uh, the molecular architects. What about that? Yeah, I agree with that. But I would say one major difference, well, maybe it's, not a, maybe it's not a difference. Maybe it's just a personal bias. We care a lot about function, okay? There can be molecules that look nice, but probably aren't worth investigating too heavily because they don't, they don't function in a way that's important to medicine. And in a similar way, there are plenty of buildings that are really idiosyncratic and beautiful or creative, but don't really work the way that a building is supposed to. So a great example of that is the Disney theater in Los Angeles that's made of all these mirrored panels. Oh, yeah. yeah. The work of architect um, Geary, Frank Geary, right? Actually, I really like his work. But the problem with, of course, uh, mirrored architecture in Los Angeles is that it reflects the sun. And in this case, the Disney theater was positioned towards uh, apparently apartment buildings that at a particular time of day had sunlight focused into them and were superheated. So they had to buff down the surfaces and remove the reflectivity of the surface. So, I mean, architecture is a a great analogy. It's true, but similarly, molecules have have to be functional. Yeah, I've been to that Disney concert hall and it is brutal in the sunshine. (laughs) There's some good analogies. And so something you've told me and something I've seen on your lab website before is this idea of using chemistry to kind of get medicines from industrial waste. So would that be kind of what you were just talking about using these sort of chemicals, maybe some of them would be unwanted or byproducts from other things and sort of using different synthesis routes to make some functional products from that? Yeah, absolutely. There are many examples in chemistry of using industrial waste, which, which is a very graphic way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Many people refer to chemical feedstocks, which themselves can be waste, but using those waste streams productively. And you think about it, this is a great service that chemistry can provide to repurpose waste that other otherwise end up hopefully purified, but then sent out into the ocean, let's say, or put into landfills. Instead, you can upcycle some of these materials. So a, a great example is artificial vanilla. Right. So we've huh. all probably eaten this, the artificial vanilla you buy from the store. Yeah. Right. So this is not so real vanilla is extracted from an orchid, which produces a bean and you extract it into usually ethanol, alcohol. OK. And you get the, the natural vanilla extract and it contains all these interesting aromatic small molecules. 
But artificial vanilla, which is much cheaper, it actually comes from one of two places, either the paper mill industry and waste from making paper. No way. Or from um, petroleum industry and purification of crude petroleum to make gasoline. Of course, we don't, you know, the gasoline doesn't go into your vanilla, but instead what they do is they take a byproduct of purification of that thick black goo, the crude petroleum, and the light hydrocarbons become gasoline, and then you have oils for lubrication, but there are all sorts of small molecules that can be repurposed and actually used instead of, instead of just being waste that's burned, they can be repurposed. And in this case, one of those byproducts can, can be averted to vanillin, which is what smells and tastes like vanilla. And it's chemically indistinguishable from the stuff you get from the plant, that small molecule. So there's no there's no danger in it whatsoever. As long as the quality control in the, in the food company is good, it's going to be identical to the natural vanilla. And the rationale, of course, is that the global demand for vanilla exceeds the production capacity of vanilla farms. Right. So in many ways, it's actually very environmentally friendly to use this existing waste stream, not have to then plow you know, many acres of forest to plant more vanilla farms, and instead repurpose it to make artificial vanilla. So, so our research is basically based on the same general idea. Sometimes living organisms produce very interesting and useful molecules, there are many examples of potentially very useful molecules for medicine that are just not practical to obtain from the source of organisms. So a great example, the poster child in this area is Taxol. The Taxol is currently used for non-small cell lung cancer and ovarian cancer, but you can't obtain it economically from the source organism, which is a Pacific yew tree. You have to strip the bark off the tree and it ends up killing the tree and it takes years upon years to reestablish the tree. So chemists developed a means to synthesize it from a metabolite of a related plant, which could be, uh, it was found in the leaves. Okay, there's, there's a related small molecule called bactin, which is found in the leaves. You could harvest the leaves, regrow the plant very quickly, subject it to chemical synthesis, and get taxol then to doctors and to patients. Ryan takes a keen interest in ethnomedicine, which investigates how various indigenous groups developed and used traditional medicines based on bioactive compounds in the surrounding plants and animals. Harnessing this native wisdom, his lab is trying to explore their therapeutic value for modern medicine, particularly in the areas of cognitive and psychological health. Yeah, so there are a few ongoing projects in the lab that overlap with what you call disorders with central nervous system. So that includes not only mental health, but also uh, memory and learning. There's a, there's a really interesting molecule that maybe we have a lot of time to talk about that is a dissociative hallucinogen. And that also can be very useful for things like PTSD and depression. Mm-hmm. One of these is one of a number of small molecules from trees that grow in Papua New Guinea and Northern mm-hmm. Australia. So, so this, is, this is actually a fascinating story. And it, it, it's very much related to something you alluded to, which is that people kind of appreciate that a lot of the medicines we have come from nature. And actually, in some ways, more and more that's, that's um, I want to say no longer true, but there are fewer and fewer examples of this, okay? But I think it's really important to remember that Western prescription medicine, all the way from, you know, including aspirin, which is discovered by the Greeks, not aspirin itself, but salicylic acid, which is found in the, the bark of willow trees. Hmm. But all of Western prescription medicine 
comes from the apothecary. So the traditional apothecary prescribed mainly herbal remedies. And this is what we associate an apothecary with. And this practice evolved pretty quickly, even though it was in existence for thousands of years, from the 19th and 20th centuries, this became the modern pharmaceutical industry. So our story, in some ways, the story related to Papua New Guinea, begins also with this idea of ethnomedicine, which is another way of saying the study of traditional medicine from the perspective of modern science. Ethnomedicine is kind of fascinating because it combines anthropology and botany and chemistry and pharmacology. Essentially, you're investigating the traditional medicine or ritual of a people group that's different than yours to figure out how how do they handle with how do they handle maladies that you normally encounter. So in this case, this story comes from work of these uh, anthropologists named Barrow, Hamilton, and Glick, and they reported in the 1940s through 60s the use of certain autochthonous plants in the medicine, the ceremony of people from Papua New Guinea. And what was really interesting is that they discovered a connection between the bark that was being used in Papua New Guinea and a collection of related trees in Northern Australia, which had been studied for a collection of molecules, um, a certain kind called alkaloids that are, were found in their bark. But people really didn't know what these alkaloids did. So what we're really interested in is leveraging our skills in chemistry to access these molecules more economically in a more environmentally friendly way that doesn't require stripping the bark from these trees and trying to figure out what receptors in the, in the human brain are actually being targeted by these compounds. And what we're really interested in is figuring out what causes the hallucination that's observed in the ritual. Wow. I mean, this space in the hallucinogens, I think, is really, really growing. And I mean, you're on the inside. So do you see a lot of compounds that are going to be useful, do you think, for sort of mental health and PTSD and all these other applications? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know that I'm qualified to give an answer on the utility of some of these compounds, but the science behind it is actually pretty fascinating. Some of the compounds we're working in are dissociative hallucinogens, and those have generated a lot of excitement because, to put, to put it in layman's terms, which are really the terms that I understand some of these concepts in, what they do is they dissociate one sense of personality one sense of person, one sense of localization. And it does so by inhibiting what's called the default mode of the brain. So it's really interesting. I mean, I, I'm not that well-versed in fMRI. So this is using MRI to study areas of activity in the brain. But basically, when you are alone, when you're alone with your thoughts, you're accessing what's called the default mode, a particular area of the brain and a particular connectivity in the brain. And what many of these dissociative hallucinogens do is they shut down that connection. And so you lose your sense of self. Right. And as I understand it, this is actually potentially very important for things like depression or anxiety, where you may feel that something is tragic. You may feel the feeling of tragedy, even though circumstantially, you may not be surrounded by tragedy. So if you can break that connection where your sensation of what is real and what is true has become disconnected, it can actually give you yourself some great insight into the reality of your circumstances. And so some uh, patients with resistant depression that have been on antidepressants and has been little to no help have found great relief in some of these dissociative hallucinogens being repurposed, um, not for recreation, but for therapeutics. 
Another ongoing project in Ryan's lab involves an ominous-sounding compound called picrotoxin. This molecule has shown promise for memory and learning disorders, but as its name suggests, if it acts on the wrong areas of the brain, it's potentially harmful. So, Ryan's team is busy tweaking its molecular makeup, turning this age-old compound into a longer-acting drug that would have no toxic side effects. This is a substance that was isolated from a plant and it was found to be the poisonous principle. Hmm. So kind of like morphine was the principle of the opium poppy that caused sleep or analgesia. So, I mean, this is so old that you will find reference to it in Charles Dickens' work. Oh, no way. Okay, it was amazing. He, he edited a serial magazine in London that commented on, eh, there, were, there were short stories and small opinion pieces, and one of them bemoaned the adulterants that were added to the brewing of beer in London. And one of them were the seeds from this plant and make this toxin, because if you get a sublethal dose anyway, it's kind of excitatory. And so then if you mix it in with the hops that you use for brewing of beer, you get the effect of the alcohol, but you also get the excitatory effect of this toxin. It's a little bit scary, actually. I mean, so what our lab is interested in, in a general way, is if you think about this constellation of atoms, a little bit like the constellation of pieces on the chessboard, what we'd like to do is make a single change, like pulling that piece off the chessboard, that simplifies the problem. Can you change the structure in such a way that you can get checkmate in just one step, but potentially helps the function? This is what we've done with picrotoxinin. So what we did was we took picrotoxinin and we actually added something to it. We said, huh, if we make that change, it's probably not going to change its function. It's probably still going to bind the GABA receptor, but it could actually stabilize picrotoxinin against degradation. And it sure looks like it's going to make the synthesis a lot easier. Wow. It turns out that uh, it actually makes it much more selective against invertebrate receptors. And so it doesn't cause toxicity in mammals, but also significantly stabilizes it towards degradation in water or blood, which is pretty amazing. Uh, that is exciting. And yeah, this idea that you can just make one subtle change and leave a lot of the function intact, but then also make it easier to, to produce as well. And I mean, I'm just shocked at the wrong beer and, and we could have just not had any Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's pretty amazing. People have tried to use this substance for years in medicine. At some point, it was recommended as an antidote for barbiturate poisoning. Mm -hmm. But I guess the therapeutic window for getting therapeutic effect versus killing somebody was just too narrow. So now it's not really recommended for any use except as a tool. When you're not engaged in chemical synthesis, what are some of your hobbies and passions outside of the lab? I think, I think I've seen you with your kiddos before. So I have four kids. I've seen us probably at the park. I don't know if I've been with all of them at the time, but for, for a, a good six-year period, they all had to be with me at all times. Because my wife was in residency. Wow. So she was just not around. It's not her fault. But, you know, she was working 80-hour work weeks and sometimes working overnight. So, so now, now I'm trying to get back into getting into shape a little bit more. I've always, I've always really loved uh, listening and playing music. So I'm cool. getting back into piano. 
I'm trying to balance the music I really love with this jazz versus the music I'm actually good at, which is just playing sort of standard classical pieces because I'm just not, I, I'm not a good jazz pianist. But I really love the music of Chopin and Debussy. And then just for a little fun, I've thrown in some Scott Joplin ragtime. Fun. I feel like there's this fun confluence between science and music, actually. There's a lot that is in many ways all-consuming insofar as it's a large creative endeavor. All these multiple components that you're trying to put together. I've never composed a symphony, but I imagine that you know some of the projects we have in lab are a little bit like that, where you have these many different strains that we're all trying to put together into a cohesive story. You're conducting a molecular symphony, I would say. <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I, will, I will steal that analogy in the future. Yeah, you can have that one. <laughs> <laughs> that can be one of your uh, <laughs> testimonies. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'll just end it with this question. And you sort of alluded to a bit of this at the start, but it could be even more broad. So if you could give just one piece of advice or your wisdom to anyone in the realm of work, uh, or it could be career progression, life, health, self-improvement, what do you think it would be and why? I don't know. Listen, what I always tell people is if you just do a good, honest job, that'll take you so far, right? You don't have to spin. You don't have to dominate. Just do a good, honest job and be yourself. It's tough because you can't say, you can't guarantee success. A lot of success is circumstantial. Mm -hmm. Even if you fail, you can still look at yourself in the mirror and say, I did a good, honest job. Right. Yeah. I think hard work and honesty are some of the best currencies. Yeah. Well, that brings today's chemistry lesson to a close. And it's amazing to think that with a bit of molecular magic, we could unlock scores of medicinal products that appear all around us in nature, providing the next potential therapeutic for physical or mental disorders. A huge thanks to Ryan today for breaking this down for us with some fun history thrown in. And thank you, lovely listeners, for tuning in. If you appreciate what we're doing here, please take a second to hit a star rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. It will really help us to get these life-changing discoveries to as many people as possible. 